You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. It's good to see you all this evening. Merry Christmas. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after. Welcome to Albuquerque. If you are visiting, if you are in-laws or second cousins of someone that you're sitting next to, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. It is so good to be here, and kids even. We are glad that all of you are here this evening, uh, singing and thinking about the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Uh, If you're joining us here tonight. You haven't been with us last few weeks. We've been slowly beginning to work our way through the gospel according to Luke. So it just, just so happens that this Sunday, this, or this uh, Saturday night, this Christmas Eve, is just the next text after what we have spent the last, last three weeks in chapter one. If we were going to be preaching through Luke on just a normal Sunday to Sunday schedule, I would likely combine verses one through 21 of uh, the, the, this famous passage together in one sermon. Uh, but we're going to think about this next section of the angels and glory to God in the highest and all that stuff tomorrow. Uh, but this passage of Scripture might be one of the most well-known passages, passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Likely, uh, you might have traditions in which uh, one of your little cousins or one of your kids or grandpa or someone will read this passage tonight or tomorrow morning around your house, you have heard Linus recite this from the stage countless times in A Charlie Brown Christmas. But what we don't want to do is let the passage's familiarity minimize or even take away altogether our sense of wonder, our sense of worship, and the things that Luke, who is a master storyteller, a master narrator, what he is wanting to draw our attention to. So tonight we're going to get through these, just, these first seven verses, and we're going to do so in two halves thinking about and comparing two different kings. The first king that Luke draws our attention to is Caesar Augustus. So we'll think about him as a prideful king of isolation, and then comparing Augustus to the infant Jesus, who is a humble king of presence. So a prideful king of isolation and a humble king of presence. So first of all, a prideful king of isolation. In verse 1, Luke tells us this, that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Unlike so many other ancient myths, like perhaps like Odysseus or Hercules or something, Luke is placing this story of Jesus in real time, in real place, in real history. Events and people in actual history. In the coming narrative that we're going to see tomorrow, he will emphasize, Luke will, the many, many things that the eyewitnesses saw. They saw, they saw, they saw. This is something that he'll continue throughout the book, in which And all of this supports the reason that we saw him tell Theophilus, uh, his patron, who is like probably uh, paying for him to write this book, why he is writing this whole thing together in the first place. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Luke says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He wants his patron Theophilus to have certain trust in the things that he has learned or heard about Jesus, that this is not just some myth or legend. And so Luke says that Caesar Augustus is the one who ordered that the entire Roman Empire should be registered, registered, presumably, and then counted as a part of a, like an empire-wide census. Luke definitely is giving us some historical tidbits here, certainly by mentioning Quirinius, the governor of Syria, which you have like undoubtedly seen a blog post about in the last month, or if you turned on the History Channel or something, you've likely seen that 
the dating of Quirinius is all wrong, uh, and so therefore Luke is not trustworthy, but there are some totally reasonable responses to all this. But all that to say is that th- it is not an accident that Luke is mentioning Augustus here. He's not just saying Caesar Augustus, and here are just a couple of people who happen to be reigning and ruling. Augustus is mentioned, previously known as Octavian, the great nephew of the first Roman emperor, Julius Caesar. Octavian became Caesar in 27 BC after an an incredible story of intrigue and of romance and of conflict and of military power that includes famous names like Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And in the year 9 BC, Augustus sent letters to the entire empire far and wide that there would be a newly aligned imperial calendar now based around his birthday. And this announcement was announced, these letters to the entire empire were announced as good tidings or glad tidings, the good news of the empire. Literally, this was the good news or the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the letter that was announcing Augustus as the divine savior on earth who had finally brought peace to the empire. Anyone see where we're maybe going with this? Luke is subtle here. You can read Luke. You can read the entire Gospel of Luke and not know anything about that letter of Augustus that I just mentioned, and all of this will still totally make sense. Being any more in your face might have gotten Luke and then potentially any other Christian uh, who is like holding this letter or perhaps now as a result of this letter uh, pretty quickly in super hot water with the Roman authorities. So Luke is subtle, but he is almost certainly with just this one little throwaway comment showing that one of the most important men in all of human history Caesar Augustus is actually kind of a forgettable and insignificant character in the true story of the true kingdom, the history of God's kingdom. He is a minor side bit to the real protagonist of the story of the earth, the real king of the kingdom. Luke is setting up in chapter two everything that we saw Mary consider and sing about in chapter one where Mary said that he, God, has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We're seeing that this is indeed an upside down kingdom of the true economy of heaven. I've called Augustus a prideful king of isolation first because of his own claims to be divine, which then conveniently only came after his powerful rise to power. Uh, Perhaps uh, if things had gone a different way, he, we wouldn't think of him as divine. This is a triumph brought about by political and military ruthlessness. But to advance his reign and rule, Augustus stays in the kingly halls of Roman power. Augustus does not live amongst, Augustus does not know his subjects. He does not know their names, he does not know their struggles, their fears, and he has nothing to do for those struggles or fears. But if all that Caesar Augustus, if all of that, this one little throwaway statement of Caesar Augustus is all that Luke mentions as a throwaway head nod, our focus now centers on the true and coming king, a humble king of presence. As we move through Luke, we're going to pay quite a bit of attention to geography of Jesus's movements from north to south or moving from Jewish lands to Gentile lands. But we've got our first bit here, beginning in verse four, where Luke tells us that Joseph whose family and ancestral home is in Bethlehem, uh, this is where they, they need to get to. This is a very small village south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the southern capital city, but Mary is from the very far northern and rural region and town of Nazareth. 
So even though Luke says that they went up from Galilee, we should not understand that as like modern north-south maps, but we should think of that as them actually moving south in that they are moving like an elevation up. They are moving to the higher elevated south. But it's important that Joseph is from Bethlehem and that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Why? Well, Luke tells us, because it's the city of David. As we thought about last week in Zechariah's song, Jesus is the coming son of David, the fulfillment of God's promise that he would have, David would have, a forever descendant who would reign and rule forever over God's people. So when we read this, that they're moving to Bethlehem, the city of David, Luke kind of wants us to like lean forward a little bit. We're like moving to the edge of the couch or like putting our elbows up on the table. Oh, it's happening. It's happening. Here we go. And so Joseph and the very pregnant Mary make the 90-mile walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This would be like if they started in Cuba, New Mexico, and they walked to the Isleta Casino. It's about 89 miles from Cuba to Isleta. That's a long walk, especially if you are a pregnant teenager. There could have been a donkey or some other mode of transportation. There's never any description, as we'll see next week, in the kinds of offerings that Mary and Joseph make at the temple. They are very poor. So most likely, they just walked that 90-mile walk from Cuba to Isleta. And when they finally arrive at Bethlehem, the image that we have in our heads is that of a bustling and busy village. It's like packed to the gills because everyone is there to be registered, and they move about town trying to find a place of rest. They even end up at one local inn, and the unreasonable innkeeper, perhaps uh, even as Mary is in labor outside in the street, uh, he says, sorry, there's no room here, and he closes the door on them. But then, perhaps either because the innkeeper felt bad about leaving this uh, pregnant or in labor uh, young girl outside, or perhaps because someone saw her get her, saw this door get closed on her, someone then escorts Joseph and Mary outside, outside to the outskirts of town to a stable. Perhaps even, as some traditions have it, being in a cave surrounded by animals. And this is where we see the cattle lowing as the poor baby wakes and as Jesus is born outside of town. This narrative seems to fit right in line with what we have understood Luke's uh, entire gospel to be about, what he is setting his gospel to be about, the upside down nature of the kingdom of heaven. And so here we have the true king of heaven who isn't even accepted in his own city, the city of David. He's sent outside to the outskirts just waiting for people to understand who he is to finally come and worship him. And oh baby, that sermon will preach. It really will. But the problem is, is that Luke doesn't tell us any of that. All he says is this in verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That's all we got. All right, I am begging your patience with me here for a minute. What I'm about to do isn't some clickbaity BuzzFeed article of like 10 reasons why everything that you've ever believed about Christmas is totally wrong. I'm not some Scrooge or Grinch who is trying to ruin your nativity set, but all of this, what I'm about to say, is actually theologically important. Like I said a few minutes ago, we do not want our familiarity or our supposed familiarity to cause us to miss what Luke, the master narrator and storyteller, is actually wanting to draw our attention to. So hang in there with me for just a minute. First of all, Luke says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. They're already in Bethlehem for who knows how long. 
Maybe they've arrived the night before Mary went to labor. Maybe it was a month before she went into labor. So importantly, it is not when they got there, the time came for her to give birth, or as they were arriving and coming into the town, she went into labor or something like that. While they were there, they're already in Bethlehem. But then our traditional story comes from filling in some gaps. Our imaginations like to, we grab hold on to certain words like in and manger, and then we construct this narrative, which isn't completely understandable. But first of all, it's almost entirely unthinkable to Middle Eastern senses of hospitality that Joseph and his pregnant wife would be turned away out onto the streets. One biblical scholar who has made it his life's legacy to understand first century context says this, that even if he has never been there before, Joseph can appear suddenly at the home of a distant cousin, can recite his genealogy, and then he is immediately among friends where he is honor-bound, where there is an honor-bound expectation of hospitality. He goes on, anyone who has lodged with Palestinian peasants knows that notwithstanding their hospitality, the, like, the lack of privacy is unspeakably painful. One cannot have a room to oneself, and one is never alone by day or night. I often find myself in the open country simply to find a place to be able to think. So, it's unlikely that Joseph and Mary would be turned away. Second, we read in English that there was no room at the inn, and we think we've got a picture for that. It's like we think this inn to be some bustling place like the Prancing Pony in the Fellowship of the Ring or something like that. There's a pub on the, on the first floor, lots of singing and drinking and hanging out, and then there's lodging rooms upstairs, and perhaps it's, those lodging rooms are all full, so they have to be turned away. Maybe a place like the Good Samaritan brings the wounded man in Luke 10, where we read in Luke 10 that then he, the man, the Samaritan, set him, the wounded man, on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Here's the problem. The Greek word for inn in Luke 2 and the Greek word for inn in Luke 10 are totally different words. In fact, the only other place that we read this word of inn in Luke 2 is in Luke 22, as Jesus tells his disciples to prepare the Passover meal and tell the master of the house, Jesus says, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? That's the word for inn. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? The inn in Luke 22 is the upper room. The inn in Luke 2 is likely the upper room of nearly any first century Middle Eastern house. So almost certainly it's the case that there was no room in the upper room. Many, if not most, houses would be built something like this. Jordan, you have this picture here of, this would be, this is like a cross section uh, where you have the, on the ground level, the animals are kept there. You keep them close. You want them protected. You want them on your property at night. And then you sleep upstairs in the upper room. The roof is for even further gatherings. So overwhelmingly likely, Mary, who had been staying for a while with Joseph's distant relatives, she goes into labor while they're staying at this place. There isn't room upstairs in the inn, in the upper room, in the guest room, where their hosts would undoubtedly have hoped to have hosted them. So she instead gives birth to Jesus downstairs. We actually don't know if there are any animals present. Luke just tells us that there's a manger, a feeding trough. So here's the point of all this. You might be thinking, come on, dude. Do you, did you really have to do all that to ruin our nativity, to ruin Christmas? 
First of all, I'm not telling you to go home and throw away all of your nativity sets. I love them all, and we have several of them out in our house right now. Uh, I love the C.S. Lewis quote that I shared last week from the last battle about a magical stable, that something larger than our whole world is in that stable, and I will likely share that quote every Christmas until the Lord returns. I'm not trying to ruin every stable or nativity set, but here's the point. To paraphrase another, Jesus doesn't enter our world way out by himself, sad and lonely with only his parents and the barn animals. He doesn't come way out on the outskirts needing our sympathy. Rather, in a busy and crowded house. Seriously, like Mary is in labor, likely surrounded by lots and lots of other women, lots of distant and visiting relations Not her family, mind you, but Joseph's family, people that she may have met just a couple of days ago, surrounding her labor. That is where Jesus is born, right in the thick of it, right in the middle of humanity, not needing our sympathy, but demanding our attention. The Christmas story is about Emmanuel. We've sung, we've said that word, I think, in all of the songs that we have just sung, Emmanuel. The word meaning God with us. That Jesus, not counting his divinity as something to be selfishly held onto, but rather taking the form of a servant by being born in our likeness, by taking on humanity, by becoming us. The coming of the true and high king of heaven is a coming of presence. Not, not presence, kid, like kids like you open the presence, but of him being present with us, of his presence among us. The true present of Christmas is Jesus' presence. He is present with us, his presence among us. And I think a good question for us to ask this Christmas Eve, perhaps to ask every Christmas season, is that have we gotten used to this idea? Have we perhaps gotten bored by the idea of Emmanuel, of God with us. This Christmas Eve is a time of the invasion of God into the busyness of our lives, into our workplaces, into our living rooms, right in the middle of everything. The hustle and bustle, he wants to be the center of it all, not because he's like some egomaniac, but because he wants to speak to it all. He wants to fix it all. He wants to redeem it all. He wants to give joy into it all, not to take from his subjects like Caesar, but to give them everything, to give them himself, to be among them, to finally live and then die for them. Born to die, this baby is. A tiny brow, which would later hold a crown of thorns, Nails, spear to pierce him through. He was born to die for me and you. And so tomorrow, with the shepherds, we'll see that there is actually an invitation to come and worship him. To come and worship him as he really is. Right here in our midst. Not necessarily on the outskirts, not to where we can minimize him and choose when to go out and choose when to worship him in our lives, perhaps one day of the week, perhaps one day of the year, but Jesus has come to be the center of it all, to live right in the midst of all of our lives, in the mundane, in every part, not when we feel like it. And so as you go out tonight, as you go home and eat dinner and play games and sing songs or 
watch movies, maybe open a present or two, maybe even get into an argument or a conflict or two. With the relationships that are difficult, Jesus has come to speak and to live and to redeem all of that, the good and the bad, the joyful and the sorrowful. He is in our midst, not in the outskirts, not for his birth, but for ours. His life for us to bring us into a second birth. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. He is born to die. He is born to be raised to new life that we might have a second birth in him. But his coming, while it is a coming of victory, is a coming of humility, of humble presence. And so here in Bethlehem, after the messy and very human birth of the Lord Jesus, Mary and Joseph would have likely eventually fallen asleep with Jesus in their arms, not with like, hear ye, hear ye, announcements of the birth of the king, but in silence, a silent night of praise in their hearts. So it's to this that we're going to pray and then sing of this wonderful, mysterious, joyful, and silent night. I'm so glad that you could be here with us this evening. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have been born among us, that you are one of us, that you are the God-man, that you, not giving up your divinity, but taking on, assuming our humanity, has come to reconcile God and man forever. We thank you that you were born in humility, that you were born amongst us, that you know us by name and even the hairs on our heads. And we pray now that this season might be a time about your life, about your birth, about your presence amongst us, that you might get great glory and worship in all that we think and do. And we pray and thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.